Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the book of Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say as they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them with a voice, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. The word of the Lord. I specifically asked the worship arts department this morning if I could lead in the time of offering. So at a moment, I'm going to be calling our host forward to receive an offering. And we have an offering each week as part of our liturgy to uh, respond with thankful hearts to every good and perfect gift God's given us. So uh, I wanted to set it up this way. You're all going to help me uh, in this time of offering. And and then um, we'll call the host forward. If you're around Waterstone any length of time, you probably have figured out that we are a clapping church. We clap a lot. And I want you to know that's not a worship tick. That's not mindless. In fact, if you go back into the First Testament and you read about the worship of Israel, you read about this strange thing they had called a clap offering. I don't know what it was, what it is, but they did it. And then if you go and you pray through the Psalms, we're a church that prays the Psalms, you'll begin to see this command, command in the Psalms. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. And you see that kind of command to clap, again, peppered throughout the Psalms. And so uh, the question I've had about clapping is this. Not did they do it, they did. How did they do it? Was it more individualistic, like we do it, where everyone claps on their own, it's like applause? Or I might suggest to you that they did it corporately. That is, one giant clap together. In fact, would you like to try that? Ready? We're all going to clap one giant big clap all at once. Ready? Oh, you're good. There was a few strays in there. Let's try it again. Ready? Oh, that's good. Clap offering. All right. Now, I'd like to invite the host forward to receive our morning offering. Jesus, thank you for every good and perfect gift. And as we do, let's give a clap offering. I want you to know we have had at Waterstone a December to remember. 
Let me list a couple of things here that have happened in December, and after each one, we'll give a clap offering. First of all, December, Jesus was born. All right, that's always the first thing. How about this? We serve together to do these things. Waterstone Kids Christmas Program and Preschool Program. We, we pack the house. By the way, do you know what the difference is between a kids program and a worship service? In a kids program, there are no empty seats in the front. <laughs> the only empty seats are in the back row. We packed the house twice for our Waterstone uh, Kids Christmas program and our preschool program. All right. How about this? Our Alpha Youth course attracted 25 kids who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> and of these 25, half of them came to an outreach event that our youth group put on called the Ugly Christmas Sweater Party. And it was, this has been an amazing outreach into the teens of, of our community. How about this? We had two mission trips that were around December, a trip to Mozambique and a trip to Jordan. And all of you who participated with money into that trip and prayer. How about this? Our women's Christmas tea. Over 300 women at our Christmas tea, many of whom from outside of Waterstone. Our men's ministry provided Christmas for five single moms in Waterstone. How about this? Christmas Eve. How many of you were a part of Christmas Eve in any way? Look, look at all the hands. This is a massive event that are all over the room. We have hundreds of volunteers that, that invite people into Waterstone. We had over 2,100 people come to our Christmas Eve services, and what an amazing program it was. Was it not? Just an amazing event. Thank you for all your help. We, we, we had, someone was really, really late on that one. <laughs> No judgment, no shame at Waterstone. We gave $12,000 to His Love Fellowship to help them in their Christmas store provide gifts and food for 500 families in the inner city. How about this? One more. God, through your prayers, has helped Waterstone do its first ever leadership transition in 35 years. On January 1st, I became lead pastor of Waterstone. This has been a healthy transition, and that is a very difficult thing for a church to do. We need to give God thanks for the transition. I think God was so pleased about this transition, how it's gone, that as he did in scripture, whenever he wanted to start a new thing and have a new beginning, he sent a flood. And uh, for those of you that haven't heard, we had a pipe burst uh, in our office suite over here by the west entrance, three inches of water on the floor in most of the offices. 
in our office. So if you do come into church, we ask for your patience. If you're looking for anyone in the office, we are now spread out all over the building, and it's like, where's Waldo to find any of the staff? So uh, we'll probably be working on that wing for two to three months uh, as, it's, as, it's, as it's renovated from the flood. Let me say a word to you about this transition uh, with uh, the new senior pastor. Nick Lillo, who's now become our pastor of leadership development, and the elders and the executive team have been in discussion. And what we've decided to be the next step in this process, so I've stepped in on January 1st, the next step is that Nick is going to step out of day-to-day staff activities and preaching and any kind of public ministry for the next three months. We just felt that after 35 years of leadership, there's a lot of muscle memory here. And so we need about a three-month break for the new team, have some space to form and develop. And uh, Nick also is very willing to do this because you might remember in 2017 when he had a sabbatical because of Barb, uh, her health challenges, he was not able to complete much of the work that we wanted him to do on his sabbatical. So he's going to take three months and do some writing. He's going to mentor some young pastors. He's going to get his coaching certificate, do some of those things that we wanted him to do uh, a year ago. Now he'll have the opportunity to do that. Now you'll still see him around. He's going to be here at church at least every other week. On those weeks he's not here, we are sending him out like a spy into the land to other churches to, to steal ideas and bring back some good stuff to us. So you'll still see him around. Feel free to engage him. But uh, we just felt we needed some space for a fresh new start. And, and Nick was kind of the one even pushing that. So um, that if you don't see Nick preaching until April, that's, that's why. If you have any concerns or questions about Waterstone 2.0, our elders are going to be down here in the front for prayer ministry after. But it, it, Talk to one of our elders, shoot me an email, shoot Nick an email if there's any questions we can ask about this transition. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's, as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word, let's say a prayer together and then after the prayer, just a 30 second pause or so for you to take a deep breath to breathe in the shalom of God as well as I would encourage you in the quiet, tell him what you really need this morning. Tell him. Let's pray together. With me aloud, we hear thunder in your speech, O God. We see lightning in your acts. Storm through this soul of mine. Wake the sleeping parts of me. Raise the dead parts of me. Stand us on our feet, alert, and praising in your presence. Amen. Father, receive our prayers. Amen. Year of our Lord, January 6th, 2019. To the family of Waterstone, 
loved by God, called to be saints. I believe we are a church that wants to dance. It's just sometimes we have trouble feeling the rhythm. Waterstone 2.0. Everything is changing to stay the same. Our mission is to advance God's kingdom for God's glory. Our vision is to be a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. The way we live out that vision is to practice three rhythms. The rhythm of transform, seeing Christ's kingdom come in our own hearts through spiritual growth, pursuing God. Neighbor, to see God's kingdom come in our relationships with coworkers, people who live near us, people who uh, we send our kids to school with, to see God break into their life. And then transform, to see mercy and justice invade globally our world in those places of brokenness and broken systems. So in the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing about new ideas and new projects and and vision that we hope to to begin to tackle in Waterstone 2.0. But as we were sitting down to talk about those things and even to start talking with you about them, there was an interruption There was an interruption by by the father who wanted to remind us, plans, projects, you need to do them. It's all good. But remember the most essential thing. Jesus is the reason for everything we do at Waterstone. Jesus. So let's look at the father's interruption and then we'll work it into our congregation this morning. Here's the interruption. It's in Mark chapter two, it was read for you. I won't read it again, but I wanna point out a couple of things from the text. First of all, in Mark, it's very rare to have a phrase like this, after six days. Mark is the gospel of action, and Mark was never too concerned about when things happened. So when you see a phrase like this, after six days, it's a trigger to ask, well, what happened six days prior that uh, Mark is saying is going to be connected to this event? Whatever happened six days before, Mark wants us to connect it to this transfiguration of Jesus. Well, if you go back to chapter eight, what happened in chapter eight is Jesus said, kind of the hinge of the whole gospel of Mark, that from this point on, he's going to start walking towards Jerusalem where he will be killed and three days later rise from the dead. That's what happened six days prior. And then notice what Jesus said after he told everyone what was going to happen in Jerusalem. These words. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Understand what Mark's doing. He is connecting this hard teaching, what it means to follow Jesus, deny yourself, take up a cross. 
He's connecting that hard teaching to the transfiguration of Jesus. In other words, to take up our cross and follow him, we are going to have to have our eyes set on the transfiguration of Jesus and what happened in that moment. So we'll bring those together. I wanted to talk for just a moment about what it means to follow Jesus. I know every week we have seekers in the room. We have people who are testing out this Christianity business. Jesus made no uh, bait and switch that if you begin to follow him, life would be easy. He never said that. He said, in fact, probably in many ways your life will get more difficult because I'm asking you to do the hardest thing of your life. I'm asking you actually, did you see it? To lose your life. What does he mean? The idea there of lose is, is to renounce your claim on your own life. You are not your own. He, he's asking you there to, de- to deny that you are self-sufficient, to deny that you are autonomous, to, he's asking you to submit your ambitions and your goals to his agenda. He's, he's asking you to follow him and tell your glands and your organs, no, I don't need to do everything you're telling me to do. By the way, those of us who have had seasons of our lives where we followed the advice of our glands and organs know that typically they lead us to very difficult places, Right? Saying no, but at the same time saying no, also saying yes. Yes to Jesus, yes to his agenda, yes to taking up the cross. I think Jesus' language here is very masterful. He says, when you follow me, you're losing your life. He even uses a different word for life there. It's not the word zoe that you would expect, which means like living life, you live, you die. He's not saying you'll lose your physical life. He's not asking you to lose your physical life, though that could happen. He is asking you to lose, and the word here is psyche. He's asking you to lose your mind. <laughs> Think of, he is asking you to change the way you look at yourself, to change your identity. Now, every culture has its ways of uh, teaching their people what you need to do and be in order to get value in your culture. In Jesus' day, to, to have a good self-esteem and to have a, an identity, you needed to have a good family and many children and come from a good village and own some land. Very agricultural economy and a very corporate economy. So it was very much about where you were from and what village you were part of. In our culture, it's much more individualistic. In fact, think with me for a minute. What does our culture tell us we need to do in order to have a good self-identity? Things like have a good career that you feel is fulfilling and that people respect you, a career. And hopefully in that career, it gets you status as well as good money. If you have those things, you'll feel good about yourself. And our culture also tells us, and also what you need to have a good identity is uh, a relationship that brings into your life apocalyptic romance. Thirdly, you need to be committed enough to having good health that you work out and spend the time to do that so that you have an amazing body. If you have an amazing body, people will think well of you. So our culture there is pushing those kinds of agendas. You need those things to have a good identity. Jesus comes in and says, no, I've got a different idea. First, he says, 
You, you understand this, right? Those three things, even if you get all of them, good job, good relationship, good body, it won't be enough. What you're really feeling is the hunger in your soul, and your soul was made by God and for God. Even if you get all those things in your life, there'll be good stuff there, but it will not be enough. You will still want more. And secondly, even if you get all of those things in your life, you can't keep them. You are losing them by the day, your grip on them. You cannot Take them with you. So Jesus says, I've got a better idea. Lose that mind and take my mind. Join my agenda. My agenda is to take sacrificial love into the world, to love people, every person you met, to lay down your life for them. My agenda is a courageous love taken into the world. Take that on Take up my cross, follow me. But in order to do that, hard saying, you need to keep your eyes on the transfiguration six days later. So let's go back to verses two through four. See the text again. Let's just experience this transfiguration because this transfiguration of Jesus, seeing who he is, will fuel us as we take up our cross and follow him. Peter, James, and John, they're the inner core of the disciples. Peter was the first leader of the church. James was the first martyr of the church. John was the last writer of the church. But these were the inner core of discipleship. What you see here is a leadership development program. Jesus pouring into them. And what's, I think, really interesting is both Peter and John, they wrote much of the New Testament. And this event of the transfiguration, once you begin looking for it in their writings, it's everywhere. This event radically changed their life. And they never got over it. They're up on a, on a mountain, a high mountain. We don't know exactly which mountain, but I think the mountain is almost a symbolic thing here because when you understand soon that Moses and Elijah appear, well, Elijah had a vision of God on a high mountain. Moses, as we learned in Exodus, had many encounters with God on a high mountain. And when Jesus comes back and everyone sees his glory, this glory, all over the world, when he has a second coming and returns, it will be to a mountain a high mountain. So they're there, and what happens? His clothes become dazzling white. I think Mark is kind of scrambling for language to describe how bright and radiant this was. <laughs> he says, it was whiter than anything in the world could bleach them. And in other words, if you took these clothes to a clothes specialist, they couldn't bleach them as white as this was. This is dazzling, brilliant, bright. What's happening? What's happening is that Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, when he came to earth, when he came to the manger in Bethlehem, he took on a human body. And that human body acted like a veil that blocked this bright, dazzling radiance uh, for, from us seeing him so that people could see him and actually live and look at him. But 
When he came and put that body on, Paul says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself of that glory that he had before he became a baby. When he was pre-existent, before he came to us, he had this brilliant glory that only the uncreated creator could have, that only the Lord Almighty could have, that only the invisible image of God could have. As Billy read in Colossians, he had this pre-flesh glory that was covered by a human body and what happens here is the veil is lifted for just a moment and that inner radiance that burning purity comes out of Jesus and then appears Elijah and Moses so it's not only that this majesty reveals Jesus as the Lord Almighty but Elijah all the prophets Moses all the law Jesus is not only all majesty and brilliance, but also the culmination of all of history, all of history fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the one who defines reality. He is Lord of all. What an amazing moment. And it's that vision of the majesty of Jesus as Lord Almighty, Lord of all, that fuels Jesus' followers as they take up the cross and follow him. So, how does Peter respond to this? Verses five and six, Peter starts talking. Actually, he starts planning. He said, oh, Lord, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And you know what else is rare in Mark? Editorial comments. Mark doesn't have much self-revealing information that he puts in the gospel. So when you have an editorial comment in Mark, it's you have to pay attention to it. And look what Mark says. And by the way, you also remember when we preach through Mark, Mark is probably giving us here the experience of Peter. Peter probably told Mark what to write down. And notice this. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. This majesty leveled them. Peter didn't quite know what to do, so he starts kind of going on about, well, we should maybe build these tents. And he, it's his, is his Judaism coming out, he, his Sabbath school? Because he realized from the Old Testament, whenever God came down, you needed to build an altar or you needed to have a tabernacle or a tent to meet God in where his presence would come. So we understand why he's saying what he's saying from the Old Testament. We also understand, I mean, if you and I were in that same place, wouldn't you also think you had to do something? I mean, this... Seeing the glory of Jesus Christ with your own eyes? So Peter says, wow, this is big. This is big. We need a strategy. We need a program. We need to pull something out from the past. It worked then, it'll work now. We need some devotional practice here. Let's do something. You know, there's a name for it. It's called Edifice Complex. I think we have it here. There we go, Edifice Complex. Let's do something. Let's build something. Let's plan something. You know, let's get more people on the mountain. Let's get this mass marketed out to the entire world. Let's do something. And when we're in that mode of let's do something without reflection on what we've just seen, edifice complex, we are very much out of rhythm with God out of rhythm. So the father speaks to put things back into rhythm. Here's the interruption. Here's the interruption. This is my son 
whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. So very briefly now, Waterstone 2.0, the father has interrupted us and said, Jesus is the reason for everything we do. We must listen to him. How does a church listen to Jesus? That's what I'm after. How does a church listen to Jesus? Two things. One, the first way a church listens to Jesus is they never lose sight of his majesty. Never lose sight of who he is. You know, the father interrupted two times in human history where his voice actually spoke to, and all those heard it. The first time was at his baptism when the spirit hovered over him like a dove. He went down into the water. John the Baptist brings him up and the father speaks. Do you remember? There's a subtle difference in the baptism and the transfiguration. When Jesus was baptized, the father said this, you are my beloved son. In other words, he spoke to Jesus in front of the world to tell them that Jesus was the most important thing to him. Here in the transfiguration, what does the father say? He says in front of Jesus to the world, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Waterstone, this is so important. What does this mean? Why did the father interrupt he wants us to know and remember this, that the single most important thing for a church to do is to know what we have in Christ Jesus. The single most important thing for a church to do is to revere him above any other person, above any other project, above any other plan, above any other cause to revere, to see the majesty of Jesus. When a church is in vision, in lockstep, and in, in seeing the majesty of Jesus, week after week after week, they are in rhythm. When a church understands that Jesus is the reason for everything we do, they are in rhythm. We see this in Peter, in, in first Peter, Second Peter chapter one. We see, again, remember how the transfiguration grooved their minds? All of them go back to it again and again. Just before these verses, Peter says, I want you to always remember these things. And then he says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. The transfiguration was what kept the church in rhythm with the Father, the, maj the majesty of Jesus Christ. It was from the early church and it's to now. What we need you to do as a church is to help us keep our eyes on the majesty of Jesus. I, I've never forgotten the story of a great black preacher named E.V. Hill. He pastored one of the largest churches in Los Angeles in the, in the 20th century. 
During his ministry, I believe it was a 55-year ministry he had at this church, there was a woman in, in that church that they called 1800 because she was old and they didn't know how old she was. She was called 1800. And what 1800 would do was that when a preacher, whether it was the esteemed E.V. Hill or whether it was a young preacher, a learning preacher, when they would get up and start preaching, if 1800 didn't think they mentioned Jesus' name fast enough or got to talking about Jesus soon enough, she would start yelling out. And by the way, I'm told you can actually hear this on some of the recordings of E.V. Hill's preaching. She would start yelling out to the preacher in front of all the congregation, get him up, get him up, get him up, get Jesus up. We need you to be 1800. If we don't get to Jesus fast enough, if we don't start talking about him soon enough, get him up. You need to start yelling that, especially when Danielle and Paul are preaching. The second thing we need to do, what it means to listen to Jesus, the first thing is to see his majesty, to get him up. Never lose sight of that vision of majesty. But the second thing we need to do is to feel the weight of that glory. So we, we see his majesty and we feel the weight of that glory. What does that mean? It means this. Throughout the New Testament, whenever the writers would, would talk about Jesus, they would never let the church put Jesus on the shelf with all the other gods of their culture, with all the other philosophies of their day. You see, their culture was very similar to our culture in that most of these New Testament letters went to urban centers around the Mediterranean perimeter. They were very sophisticated and urban cultures. And, and the only thing that was wrong in those cultures was to say that Jesus was the only way. Very similar to our culture, where the only thing that's intolerant, that's wrong, is to say Jesus is the only way. And the New Testament authors would never let us succumb to that. They would never let us say, well, you can just put Jesus on the shelf along with everything, other worldview and every other philosophy that's out there. No. Why? Because of the claims that Jesus made, claims that he made throughout all his teaching, even like offhanded comments. I'll never forget the comment in Luke 10. He's preaching along on some things about prayer and part of the Sermon on the Mount's a little bit there. But then he makes this offhanded comment about, yeah, and I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. What? You were there before the world was created and you saw Satan go bad? Who are you? Or Matthew chapter 25. He says he's going to return in all the glory. All that majesty at the transfiguration is going to happen again when Jesus at the second coming returns. And at the second coming, Jesus says, every person is going to stand before him. And he says it this way. I'm going to be like a shepherd who divides the sheep from the goats. Now, can you imagine if you're listening to this guy preach and he says that? At the end of time, you're going to stand before me and your destiny is going to depend on whether you believed on me. What would you think? Who is this guy? 
That is a massive claim. But there are those in our culture who just, well, Jesus is just all right with me. They, they want his teaching. He's a good guy. You can't just take the good guy and the teaching and divorce it from the claims that was the context for all the things he said. You cannot separate those. You have to either say that, yes, he's the Lord who's saying these things, or this guy is a sham. He's got mental issues, messianic complex. John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, said, if you read the Gospels, what you will discover is that there was not one moderate reaction to Jesus Christ, not one. The only way to respond to him is extremely. For instance, there were his pastors and the religious community of Israel. When they heard the things Jesus was saying about Satan falling from the sky like lightning, about at the end of time, you gotta stand before me, they said he's blasphemous and they wanted to kill him. That's the first response, kill him. The second common response in the gospel was there were those who completely understood what he was saying, took stock of their life and said, no, if that's true, I have to take up a cross. I don't want to, I'm out. They walked away. Kill him, walk away, or I believe. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he has every right to my life. I will take up a cross and follow him and I will throw everything down in my life to orbit around him and say every morning of my life, command me. Those are the only three responses in the gospels to Jesus. Kill him, walk away, command me. I'll never forget David Platt describing what it's like to meet Jesus. He says, imagine if I came to speak at your church. I'm out on C470, I get a flat tire, I stop, I start changing the tire, I step a little too close out on the highway, I get hit by, from behind by a Mack truck going 60 miles an hour. But I get up, brush myself off, change the tire, get here, I'm a few minutes late, sorry. Walk in, whew, what a morning. What would you think? You'd think, no. That's not a true story. Why? Because when you get hit by a Mack truck, things change. <laughs> and that's what it's like to meet the majesty of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for everything we do. And the story continues. We see his majesty, we feel the weight of his glory, it keeps going, this story called the church, this story called the kingdom of God, it keeps going. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in a Philippian jail cell. Their plans came to nothing. They're sitting there chained. Well, they decide, well, you know, we don't know what's gonna happen. All our plans have not turned out the way we hope. Let's just worship. Let's sing a couple of songs. I've always wondered what they sang because as soon as they started singing, there was an earthquake. The, the chains fell off. The, the gates opened. The Philippian jailkeeper runs in because, you know, he was responsible for the prisoners. If they're gone, he's dead. He looks in and Paul says, oh, we're all still here. We're worshiping Jesus. The Philippian jailkeeper and his family fall down to worship. They become followers of Christ. And that's how the gospel invaded Europe. And that's why we're here this morning. The story 
continues. Jesus is our song. He's the reason for everything we will do at Waterstone. We're gonna have big plans, projects, ideas. You gotta plan, you gotta be smart. But even those we will do because Jesus is the reason for everything. Jesus seemed to use this strategy himself. When he was on the cross dying in our place for our sins, do you know what he did? He sang. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many of you don't know, that's actually a song. It's the first line of Psalm 22. Do you know how that song ends? By the way, the rabbis believed if you sang the first line, you sang the whole song. Here's how the song ends. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. So it appears that Jesus descended into a prison, a prison far greater than Englewood or Florence or Philippi or Rome, a prison that was indeed hell. He descended into hell singing so that he could break down the gates of hell. They will not prevail. And I'm suggesting to you that Jesus is also already descending into your hell. Whatever it is you bring in with you this morning that's causing you to lose sight of his majesty, Jesus is with you. He's descended. And when you get into resonating with his majesty, when you see him for who he is, he is breaking down the walls of the hell of your life as well. So we honor him now. We invite him deeply into our lives as we come to the table of communion this morning. As we come, we read and prepare our hearts from this liturgy. And then the words of institution, I will ask the servers to get ready to be in place. Let us prepare to come to the table and proclaim that Jesus is the reason for everything we do. Now the silence, now the peace, now the empty hands uplifted, now the kneeling, now the plea, now the Father's arms in welcome. Now the hearing, now the power, now the vessel brimmed for pouring, now the body, now the blood, now the joyful celebration. Now the wedding, now the songs, now the heart forgiven, leaping, now the Spirit's visitation, now the Son's epiphany, now the Father's blessing, now, now. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you're ready to come to the table, to remember that Jesus is the reason for everything we do. Leave your seat, come to a station around the room, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. You can take it back to your seat or anywhere in the room.
come to the table and worship him.